Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I'm your host, Jeff, better known as Billy Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 70th episode of the Nauticast titled Call of the Wild, an analysis of A Clash of Kings brand one in which the winged wolf and the Stark and Winterfell fight for the soul of our precious baby boy Bran, the future King Westeros. Yes, confirmed. Long may he reign. Yeah, we said it. He gonna reign. I think the part of season eight I'm saltiest and defensive is honestly King Bran, because the more I think about the series, the more I think Bran might be my favorite of the main cast, and I'm just so happy he ends up in charge, and anyone who doesn't like it, well, well, I apologize. You can go to hell is what Emma's trying to say. (laughs) I was realizing that's much more Jeff's line. I should leave him to say it. Uh, Well, I appreciate you having giving me the ability to say my own line. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our hand of the King Wolfman, Zach, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Warden of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Jean, Master of Coin, Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Warden of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Baby the Onion Baby, Lord Blackheart the Defiant, Master of Zorse, Lord Micah, Warden of the West and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym that was promised, the High Bearded Priest, the Blue Ringed Octoling, Lord Jake, Assistant to the Hand of the King, Lady Zenith Valerian, Hedrical, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Lord James Stormborn, Warden of the Worldwide Werewood, Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Richard, Sealer of Bravis, and our newest member of our small council. Everyone give a round of applause for Kelly, Warden of the East and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, which I absolutely fucking love. She sent us a really uh, awesome note on Patreon uh, talking about some things that were going on in her life. We won't read the whole note because it were, there was some private stuff in there, but we really, really appreciate the note. And so thank you for joining our small council, Kelly, and thank you so much for your touching note. Much love. Absolutely, Kelly. We really uh, appreciate it. And your, your note brought us both a lot of happiness. And thank you, as always, to all our counselors for all your support. Absolutely. Our spoiler warning, as we talk about in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three duck and egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Windswinder sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Jancy O, Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, who asked a question we weren't able to get to for our review of Game of Thrones Season 8, Episode 6, The Iron Throne, but we're getting to it here. So she asks, so I'm obviously pleased Kid Harrington is coming north. <laughs> Can you help me feel any better thematically about Bran being crowned? Thanks, guys. Absolutely. Great question. It's, it's come up before, and while I was glib about it earlier, I think it's certainly worth debating and discussing this particular plot point and how it's set up in the books or not, especially when we get to Bran's chapters in A Clash of Kings, because I think these chapters, maybe more than any of his other chapters, are central to that discussion. Agreed. I, I think when we're looking at Brand 1, it reads like a leadership arc that's preparing Brand for the Iron Throne at some point down the road. And if not Iron, the Iron Throne, I think like before we saw the, the episode of the Iron Throne, we could expect Brand to be in some sort of leadership position or in some sort of command position. Because when you're looking at like his class chapters, it is an arc designed to usher Bran into leadership, right? So you've got Bran learning about what it's like to actually run a castle and not just be run a castle, be prince of, of Winterfell. And I think it's also interesting too, we'll talk about this in this in, in Bran 1, but that old Nan never calls him prince because he's not going to be the prince, he's going to be the king uh, of, of all of Westeros. Which is a really kind of interesting little catch there that I may have made, which may not be a catch at all. Re- regardless, I do think, like, we're looking at, like, Brand 2 from A Clash of Kings. There we get Brand learning how to actually 
like rule and advise and, and listen to counselors and advice and what he's supposed to do when he's got one Lord with one proposal and one Lord with an opposite proposal and having these two Lords then work together, which is really, really interesting. Um, and he does a really good job working with specifically houses Umber and houses Manderley in, in that, in that, in that harvest feast food to get them to work together. So I think that's all preparing brand for the ultimate role. Now I think, <laughs> I think the show was absolutely correct that Bran is going to be the king of the, you know, king of the six kingdoms, I guess, at this point. But I, I do uh, I, I do think that there was, you know, as, as a lot of season eight is, we've talked about specifically in our season eight review episodes. A lot of it is a lot of the plot points were very rushed, even though they were likely what George told David Benioff and Dan Weiss. I do think that Bran becoming king is definitely a George thing because I can't imagine those guys coming up with Bran as king. I, I just, I just, I, I think they would probably go for more of a John or Danny if that was if they were if they're right in the street. And that's not that's no offense to to D and D on that point. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think they were left with a difficult situation in a number of ways. A large part to do with the the five year gap. You know, I think George originally planned for Bran to be more in the Rob John age range when he came into his crown, and not as young as he currently is. I think the show, for a variety of reasons, some understandable, I think some less so, didn't really invest much in the magical side of things as compared to the books. So Bran showing up as an important figure at all really didn't seem to gel particularly well. I think. I think a lot of this comes down to how much you invest in A Song of Ice and Fire's being committed to realism, and especially political realism, and I think th- that connection has been somewhat overstated, including by the author himself. <laughs> uh, and I think I think Brand being king is less about a, a solution to political problems and more about trying to bring the political worlds and magical worlds into harmony, because a lot of the things you see in Clash of Kings, as, as I brought up in, in the couple episodes we've done so far, is not just about political expansion and magical expansion, but about how those two things work together. It's not just that Stannis is claiming the crown, willing to do anything to, to get it. It's, it's that he has Melisandre and her prophecies and her powers by her side. And the way Arya relates to Jock and Hagar has a lot to do with how she relates to the armies around her and what they're doing to people. I think you get a sense that you can't solve one without the other. Like, you can't you can't solve the magical threat in a large part because of political problems. Because Westeros is consumed with civil war and the Night's Watch has taken its eye off the ball and discrimination against wildlings stops people from getting together. And you can't solve the political problems either, I think, without addressing the, you know, things like the Others and the Dragons. Things which, you know, George has compared to weapons of mass destruction or forces of climate change or just, you know, power multipliers in general that, that make the political situation is so much more dire and difficult than it is. So I, for me, King Bran feels like less, less like a, a concrete set of policy proposals and more like a sense of, of things slipping into mm-hmm. place that, that weren't there before. Like, you know, I imagine this is going to go hand in hand with the seasons coming to a, what would we would consider a normal kind of time span. And our, our, our friend, uh, Michael uh, Bookshelf Stud and some other people have theorized that maybe Bran will rule from the Isle of Faces at the center of the continent. Mm. And again, like bringing those magical and political worlds together. And I think it's, it's going to feel maybe like cornier and like <laughs> than people might, or like even sappier than people might expect. But I think it'll also have, I think it'll have some layers that weren't quite present on season eight, even though I completely agree with you that that felt like a plot point directly from George. Yeah, I think that, that's, that's a fantastic point. I think. Melding the political and the magical together is ultimately what the Song of Ice and Fire is, right? It's about exactly. joining, joining identities and joining different themes. And, and like on a, on a high meta level, it's about like joining this idea that we can have a story that has both political realism, 
battles, all the war shit that I love, and all of the thematic, and not just thematic, but all of the magical, trippy, you know, Shade of the Evening stuff that Emmett loves and join together and form the one true podcast of A Song of Ice and Fire, right? <laughs> so basically, Brand's arc is our arc in the Not A Cast podcast, is what I'm trying to say. 100%. And like, you have the Jojen and Mira talking in Brand's chapters about, you know, ice can mate with fire and love can mate with hate and the, and the land is one. Like, he's he feels like the center, even if he doesn't get the most chapters or isn't the most active in the plot. He feels like the, the heart of it in a lot of ways. And, of course, his training here in Clash is less hands-on than, like, with John and Danny getting a dance with dragons. But it's also worth noting that John and Danny, at the end of a dance with dragons, walk away from their leadership right. roles and feel completely unsatisfied and unfulfilled with them for a variety of reasons, a lot of which are sympathetic. But compare that to, like, Bran's last chapter in this book, where he feels, again, that sense of harmony. And, yes... My childhood and my childhood home is broken, but it's not dead. It will rise again, and so will I. Like that, doesn't that feel more like the person who's going to be in charge at the end more than the person who, for good reasons or not, walks away? You know what I mean? Walks away. Uh, uh, <laughs> <true>. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <clears throat> no, but yeah, I think you're absolutely correct. I think like you're supposed to have Bran reach that really low point at the end of a Clash of Kings, that, but also end on a really hopeful note, which I think is yep. specifically what we're going to be getting with the end of A Song of Ice and Fire, right? I think it's going to feel like a lot of a bummer of an ending, right? John killing Daenerys, I think, is another thing that's going to happen in the books too. That's going to be very sad. King's Landing is going to get destroyed. Also, extremely sad. But George is not writing just a bitter ending. He's writing what he's termed a bittersweet ending. And I think that bittersweet ending will be found in someone like Bran, who is who's going to have some moral struggles, especially when we talk about Hodor, but ultimately is a sweet boy, I think, who will pull himself out of these kind of moral quandaries that he's engaging in come Storm of Swords and A Dance with Dragons and will redeem himself in some way. And part of that redemption will be in leading Westeros, hopefully in a good, noble, and just way come, I guess, post a, a, a dream of because I don't imagine we're going to get much about Bran's reign in, in A Song of Ice and Fire. Maybe a vision or two, we'll see. But yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, the sweet boy part is, is important to emphasize. And I don't think this translated to the show for a variety of reasons. Reasons, but I really think part of what defines Bran's character and will always defines Bran's character is love. You know, there's that line later in Clash of Kings when he says he sent sweets down to Old Nan and Hodor for no reason but that he loved them. Hmm. And I think that, you know, the, the, the limitless undying love angle to the shamanic traditions is just as important as having the third eye and speaking to the gods, the sense of seeing the entirety fabric of the universe and, and loving it and feeling connection to all of it. I feel like that's going to still be part of Bran's character and that's going to be the sweet part of the bittersweet ending you were talking about. I absolutely agreed there. So thank you, thank you, Jancy O, for getting us to talk a lot about Bran as the King. Hope you guys have enjoyed that and thank you very much for the question. As always, if you guys want to ask us questions we'll answer on the podcast, you're welcome to sign up as a $10 a month Sworn Sword patron over at patreon.com forward slash not a cast ASOIF. But... Asking questions is not the only ben- benefit for our Patreon. We also have bonus episodes, and we are thrilled to announce that our first episode for our brand new podcast covering George R. Barton's 1982 no- novel Fever Dream is coming your guys' way next week. So it'll be available on September 9th for our Small Council patrons, September 10th for our High Lords Ladies and our Kingsguard patrons, September 11th for our Sworn Swords, and September 12th for our $5 a month poor fellow patrons so if you guys have not had a chance to check out our patreon which i know a lot of you guys have we really really appreciate check us out at patreon.com forward slash not a cast a-s-o-i-a-f absolutely we're very thrilled to get into fever dream it's going to be a lot of fun plunging into a different story by george a completely different setting and tone and genre but it's it's a, a setting and tone and genre that i really love just as much as the high fantasy stuff he does in a song of ice and fire so been looking forward to it for a while so i hope you guys enjoy it as much as we do Absolutely. It's going to be a lot of a lot of fun. Can't wait to do that with you, sir. 
This episode is not about Fever Dream. It is about Bran Stark's first chapter, if you didn't already guess that, from our, our question that we selected for this week. And here is its synopsis. Bran Stark prefers sitting on the hard stone of, window, of a window seat over his soft bed. In bed, he could only stare at the ceiling. Yet at the window seat, the wide world still called. Bran remains paralyzed and couldn't do the things he used to love doing, but he could watch the beauty of the castle and listen to the direwolves singing their songs from the window seat. And Bran... Well, he's been dreaming of wolves of late. They are talking to me, brother to brother, he told himself when the dire wolves howled. He could almost understand them. Not not quite, not truly, but almost, as if they were singing in a language he had once known and somehow forgotten. And while his Fregus, that is the Walders we're going to be talking about extensively in this episode, were scared of the wolves, Bran and the rest of the Starks have wolf blood in them. Old Nan had told them as much, warned them as much, that some Starks had a stronger connection to their wolf's blood than others. As such, Bran knows the individual house of the wolves. Sauer's house are long and sad, grieving and full of longing. Shaggy Dog's house, meanwhile, were savage. The castle rings with their howls day and night with only the two wolves where there had once been six wolves. And Bran kind of wonders if the two direwolves are calling to their brothers and sisters or mourning their fallen sister. Who can know the mind of a wolf, Sir Roger Cassell said when Bran asked him why they howled. The kennelmaster, who may know something about this matter, thinks the wolves are howling for freedom and how they don't want to be caged up within the castle. Gate, the cook, says they want to hunt. Lewin, though, thinks that they're howling at the moon and maybe they think the red comet has them confused. But Osha, Osha knows. Your wolves have more wit than your maester. They know truths the gray man has forgotten. The way she said it made him shiver, and when she asked what the comet meant, she answered, Blood and fire, boy, and nothing sweet. Meanwhile, Bran interviews other people who are on the right track. Septon Shale thinks it's the sword slaying the season, and Old Nan is more succinct. It be dragons, boy. Nan never calls Bran Prince, meanwhile, she only calls him boy. Interesting, right about that? The direwolves howl and howl to the annoyance of the fear of everyone within Winterfell. Dogs bark, horses kick, the water frays shiver, and even Lewin isn't sleeping well these days. But Bran... Well, he doesn't mind the wolves howling. He knows they've been confined to the godswood after Shaggy Dog bit Little Water, but the way Winterfell works, the sounds of the direwolves howling bounces off the walls and even feels like it's right below Bran or up on the walls itself. He wishes he could see his direwolves all. The red comet, though, can be seen from Bran's window. It hangs high above the walls and tower that Bran had climbed, the same walls and tower that Bran had, quote, fallen from. Bran still doesn't remember falling, but everyone said he did. So he must have, Right. Wrong. The clue here is found in that Bran had recently caught sight of gargoyles and that made him feel weird inside. Bran thinks his weird feelings come because, well, he can't climb, walk, run, or sword fight, and his dreams of becoming a knight were dead too, but he's not precisely correct there. His direwolf summer howled the whole time Bran was unconscious. Rob had told him that. All the direwolves mourned for Bran, and then Rob went away to war, and the direwolves had howled and howled when the raven brought word of Ned's death back in Bran's final Game of Thrones chapter. Who are they mourning now, Bran wondered. Had some enemy slain the king of the north who used to be his brother Rob? Had his bastard brother Jon Snow fallen from the wall? Had his mother died or one of his sisters? Or was this something else, as Maester and Septon and Old Nan seemed to think? Bran wonders if he were a direwolf whether he would understand them, because in his wolf dreams, Bran runs up mountains with moons high above him and the world below. Bran makes a weak, ooh, wolfhound, and then he cups his hands and gives the old college tray, ooh, hoo, 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 child. Sorry, I just had to drop in that little song there. He howls over and over again, bringing Hayhead, one of the guardsmen, to Bran's door, asking what he's going on about. Bran turns and howls some more until Hayhead retreats. But then Hayhead returns with Lewin, and the maester tries to get Bran to stop and ask what he's doing at this hour. Well, he's talking to the wolves, of course. Duh. 
okay, fine, but you really, but Brand, you really should get some rest, kid. But Brand doesn't have to go to sleep now if he doesn't want to. He's the fucking Lord of Winterfell. But when he sleeps, though, Maester, he turns into wolf. By the way, do wolves dream? Well, sure, Lewin says, all living creatures dream. Do dead men dream, Bran asks, thinking of his father? In the dark crypts below Winterfell, a stonemason was chiseling out his father's likeness in granite. Lewin says there's disagreement on whether dead men dream, but when Bran asks if trees dream, Lewin's all like, Psh, <laughs> no way, kid. But Bran does know that they dream. They dream tree dreams, because when Bran dreams, he dreams of a tree, a great werewood calling to him. That said, Bran likes the wolf dreams better. Maester Lewin says that Bran really should go and play with the other children, but Bran hates him, even if they are Catelyn's wards. He wants him gone. When Lewin demands to know where they'd go if he turned them out, Bran's all like, fuck the phrase, fuck him. Well, well, no, he doesn't exactly say that because he's a kid, but uh, he says they can go home and who the fuck cares that the phrase. They're preventing Bran from having summer in his room. Well, yeah, Bran, that's because the wolves attacked the phrase. That was Shaggy Dog. Summer never bit anyone. Oh, oh, really, Bran? So what was that when Summer tore out the man's throat back in a Game of Thrones Catelyn 3? You remember that little event? Probably not because you're unconscious, but still. We do a bit more flashbacks with George reintroducing plot elements from Game of Thrones, more about not being able to ride, dangers in the wolf's wood, Bran's dreams of knighthood, how he wants to be a wolf, etc. But then we switch back to the present with Bran wishing he could be a wolf so he could tear out Jamie Lannister's throat and then everyone will come back home to Winterfell. He starts ooh-hoo-hoo-hoo-hooing, which is more like a wolf outright should be like... Oh, uh, whatever. Again, to Lewin's annoyance and final defeat, Lewin leaves looking at Bran with part grief and part disgust. Alone, Bran stops howling and starts resenting. The phrase, primarily. Unlike Rickon, Bran was plenty welcoming to the phrase at first, but then he found out the game. Ah, yes, the game. Lord of the Crossing. The tools of the game are as follows. A body of water, a log, and a staff. You try to get across the water with one player acting as Lord of the Crossing. And here's how you play. This is from the rulebook, which is actually a Clash of Kings brand one. The way the game was played, you laid the log across the water and one player stood up in the middle with the stick. He was the Lord of the Crossing. And when one of the players came up, he had to say, I am the Lord of the Crossing. Who goes there? And the other player had to make up a speech about who they were and why they should be allowed to cross. The Lord can make them swear oaths and answer questions. They didn't have to tell the truth, of course, but the oaths were binding unless they said mayhaps so the trick was to say mayhaps so the lord of the crossing didn't notice then you could try and knock the lord into the water and you got to be the lord of the crossing but only if you said mayhaps otherwise you were out of the game the lord got to knock anyone in the water anytime he pleased and he was the only one who got to use a stick in actuality though the game mostly was about shoving and hitting and falling into the water and arguing about whether someone said mayhaps or not as it happens, Little Water wins most of the games more than the others. And let's get in depth on the water, shall we? Little Water was tall and stout, more so than Big Water, but Big Water is 52 days older than Little Water. They're cousins, not brothers, with Little Water being the son of Merit Frey and Big Water being the son of Jamos Frey. Big Water knows that Little Water is ahead of the succession to the twins, but he says that he'll hold the twins someday, despite Little Water's skepticism. The two waters sleep in Jon Snow's old chambers since Jon was never coming back, Mm, don't know about that one. And Bran hates that the phrase are stealing John's place. Bran had watched the waters playing Lord of the Crossing with the phrase giving Bran the honor, in quotation marks, of being the neutral arbiter of all mayhaps disputes. But, of course, they quickly forgot about him after they started playing. The splashing round got everyone to come to the pond, and this made Bran quite bitter. If I had my legs, I'd knock them all into the water, he thought bitterly. No one would ever be the Lord of the Crossing but me. Rickon was one of the people who came to watch with Shaggy Dog, and then he wanted to play. Bran watched as Little Water smacks Rickon with a stick, and then Shaggy Dog lunged at Little Water, and there's blood in the water with the water shrieking, Red Murder! 
<laughs> they're, they're shrieking, Dad? That's foreshadowing, George. After that, Rickon likes the Walters, but they never played Lord of the Crossing again. They, they played other games, they stole food from the kitchens, and they raced all over the walls. And Rickon... Well, that boy had even showed the Walters the crypts to Bran's fury. You had no right, Bran screamed at his brother when he heard. That was our place, a Stark place. But Rickon? Well, he never cared. Flashing back to the present, Lewin comes in with Osha and Hayhead, with Lewin declaring that he's made a sleeping potion for Bran. Ocean picks Bran up and puts him into bed. Lewin gives Bran the medicine, saying it will give him dreamless sleep, and Bran desperately wants to believe this will be true. He drinks, and Lewin states that Bran will feel better as he leaves. But Osha stays. She asks if Bran's dreaming wolf dreams, and he nods. You should not fight so hard, boy. I see you talking to the heart tree. Might be the gods are trying to talk back. Wait, the gods are talking, Bran asks, as his vision grows blurry. He thinks about sweet, dreamless sleep, but when sleep comes, it ain't dreamless. Bran moves in the godswood silently, walking. Bran exults in it, knowing that it's just a dream, but dreamy walking was better than the paralysis of his chamber, of his bedchamber. Darkness surrounds the trees, but Bran moves on four strong legs. He feels damp undergrowth underneath his feet, and he loves the shit out of it. The smells come next, alive and intoxicating. The mud from the hot pools, rotting earth, squirrels in the trees. But the smell of squirrels makes him hunger for the taste of, quote, hot blood and the exciting feeling of bones crunching in his teeth. Bran smells his brother's shaggy dog here, too, as they prowl around the trees, searching for and never finding prey. The trees silhouette the great walls of, quote, dead man rock, which is just a great line, that rise high above, spotted with moss. Iron gates bar their way from progressing into the castle itself, no matter how hard Shaggy Dog tried to find his way in. They would mark trees, but it wouldn't keep the men away. The world was closing in around the direwolves, but beyond the walls of Winterfell, the world was calling, and Bran knew that he must answer or die. And that is A Clash of Kings Brand 1, a chapter full of foundation and groundwork for the rest of Brand's arc, both in Clash and all the subsequent books, both published and unpublished to come. And I really like this chapter. It's actually a really neat chapter, one that I had largely overlooked in times past, as we talked about. Uh, we were coming up to this episode, our little mini episode for our two higher tiered patrons. What do you think about this chapter, man? Yeah, I really enjoyed this chapter, too. I think Brand's storylines in A Game of Thrones and A Clash of Kings have opposing strengths and weaknesses. His chapters in book one are loaded with memorable moments and images. The direwolves, the fall, the fever dream, the ice spiders, grey wind ripping off the great John's fingers. But it doesn't amount to much within the confines of that book. As I said when last we covered a brand chapter at the end of book one, at some point you realize that it's all set up, if brilliantly written set up. (laughs) Brand's A Clash of Kings chapters, by contrast, lack those like iconic standalone moments, those scenes you get the sense that George just had to write. Bran's best chapter in the book, in my opinion, is his last one, the very last chapter in the book, and that doesn't have like a big dramatic scene, really. It's a, it's a masterpiece of mood and atmosphere and just really good prose. But for me, what these chapters lack in fireworks, they more than make up for in terms of structure. Bran just has a perfect arc, a perfect character arc in A Clash of Kings. This chapter sets up his internal struggle, the prince versus the warg. On one shoulder, he's got the winged wolf. On the other shoulder, he's got the Stark in Winterfell. And by book's end, he's set out from his childhood home, his broken, not dead, childhood home, to quote him, to reconcile the two. And so thus, in A Storm of Swords, he'll be both the burgeoning green seer slash skin changer that Jojen is training... And he's also the Stark heir in exile, who has that very significant meeting with the the little in the hills, who tells them, you know, got to have a Stark back in Winterfell, and Jojen says the wolves will come again. It's, it's both those halves. And everything in this book, every detail and development and supporting character in his chapters ushers him down that path. As such, while I get why this storyline is 
less frequently discussed than his one in the Game of Thrones. I think it adds up to more than the sum of its parts and makes for a more satisfying whole. Agreed. I completely agree that it's a much more satisfying story than, than a Game of Thrones. You know, this chapter, as, as much as, as, as I love it, it's mostly told in retrospect, right? Which is actually an interesting creative choice on George's part. Like it's 90% of it is told as flashback of things that have occurred before we get to the present day story with Bran being fed a potion to go to sleep as he's howling at the wolves. You know, I think this chapter is as solid as any brand chapter that comes. But what's interesting is what, but what's interesting to me in like doing that, that flashback stuff is how much work Martin is doing to reintroduce, is doing to reintroduce us to Grand, <laughs> is doing to reintroduce us to Brand. It's, it's fascinating, right? Because I think Martin was like putting a massive like exclamation point, like this kid's story is important. Let me again talk about all the things that happened with him fighting the direwolves, with him, you know, having his brother being let out of, of Winterfell and going on to fight in wars. The even events with Osher are brought up in this chapter as, as basically being like, these are the events that are Bran's life. This is this kid's story is really, really important. So it's really important. But I think maybe like reintroduction is the wrong term. Maybe the better term is kind of reconnecting us to Bran, which is hmm. going to become vitally important for Bran as he's connecting into the Weirwood network. Come, come and dance with dragons. And while you're, you're quite right that Bran's early chapters in A Game of Thrones have kind of sweeping psychedelic moments, I think it's something you've said in the past, his later chapters end with something of an anticlimax. Again, again, they're not bad chapters, but they don't have the same kind of thunderous plot movements that his other chapters have in the books. But and, and in a lot of ways, that's because George is kind of like grinding the wheels of Bran's plot and progression to a halt. As he wants us to wait for a Clash of Kings to actually talk about some of the things that are going to be happen with, happening with Bran. But in reintroducing us to Bran or in reconnecting us to Bran, it's interesting to consider the start of Bran becoming a skin changer and warg in the context of magic emerging with the birth of the dragons and the red comet over the sky. You know, dragons are here. We know this from Danny's final chapter in the Game of Thrones. Blood and fire are both coming and the seasons are changing. Mm-hmm. Winter is also coming and the world of the living or, or blood room, both, of course, both these people need Bran to wake up to his power. Bran, as his final sentence in, the, in this chapter indicates, must answer the call to action, of course, or die. Exactly. It's it's such like pure hero's journey stuff. And, you know, obviously it's, it's easy to reduce all story shapes and all their variety to just Joseph Campbell and Hero of a Thousand Faces. And even he knew there was a lot of things he was simplifying and leaving out. And you should always be like, you know, going to open to experiencing other kinds of stories and learning about different kinds of other cultures, stories, and story structures. And I think that's something that's part of the great interest in reading narratives in general. But, you know, some tropes are not just terrible ideas that need to be retired. Some of them do work. And, you know, I think some of the criticisms of, like, Bran's arc as being too tropey feel like to me, like, oh, look at that chair with its four legs. Trope much? (laughs) It's like, well, no, but that just works. And I think you see that here with Bran Stark, with Bran Stark's story, that all all these familiar ideas are being used really effectively. And what makes it not simplistic is the real sense of a struggle and the sense of multiple different factors going into this this familiarly constructed and and paced storyline. And you see that right away in this chapter. George is establishing this dynamic wherein even as Bran becomes more more central than ever at Winterfell, even as he becomes the, for the first time in his life the most important person in the castle. He longs to escape it. Abed, the room was his cell, and Winterfell his prison. Yet outside his window, the wide world still called. And there's a bunch of reasons why this is the case. And part of this is because Dad went south and died, and Mom and his big brother went south to war, and his sisters are kidnapped or missing, and John is at the wall, and it's like everything that made Winterfell his home left. 
So he kind of wants to go out to get it back. Like he says to Maester Lewin, I want to go find Rob as a wolf and join him in the war. And that's not about Bran being bloodthirsty, really. It's about him wanting to be with Rob where he is <laughs> instead of here with the Winterfell that doesn't mean much to him anymore. In part, it's also a reaction to his disability. Like Bran can't run or ride or, of course, climb like he used to. And so he's frustrated and feels trapped and wants to get out and you know, smell the air and, and hear the rivers and, you know, just be in, be in nature, especially again, like the way he used to be. And in part, of course, it's just because he's growing up. I mean, you know, one of the reasons the, the hero's journey stuff sticks around is because it, it feels, it feels like the process of growing up to a lot of people and going through those stages in, in, in your life. And Bran is, wants to be his own person and get out from his childhood home. And he's feeling that those, you know, I want to sow my oats feelings for the first time. But all of those aside, George is above all linking Bran's dissatisfaction in this chapter to his burgeoning magical abilities, especially in regards to the wolves, which as with Danny and her dragons just always stand in for that magical side. Of late, he often dreamed of wolves. They are talking to me, brother to brother, he told himself when the direwolves howled. He could almost understand them. Not quite, not truly, but almost, as if they were singing in a language he had once known and somehow forgotten. The Walders might be scared of them, but the Starks had wolf blood. Old Nan told him so, though it is stronger in some than others, she warns. It's Old Nan, keeper of the memories of magic, knower of ice spiders. And she's, <laughs> she's letting Bran know that something old is awakening in him. And on one hand... That fits his political identity pretty well, right? It's a stark trait. As she says, the direwolf is on their banners. Rob himself is on campaign with his wolf. It seems to fit, and Bran still does feel some of his old connection to Winterfell, like when he yells at Rickon about taking the Walders down to the crypt. You had no right. That was our place, a stark place. He still cares, but on the other hand, his fall alienated him from his home. As I talked about in book one, he feels like Winterfell had him in its arms and let him go, that he didn't just fall, Winterfell betrayed him. And that's tied to the loss of his childhood dreams and his forced maturation from a kid who wanted to be a knight to a young man who has to be a prince. I think the most crucial passage in this this whole chapter is uh, is this. Once Bran had known every stone of those buildings, inside and out, he'd climbed them all, scampering up walls as easily as other boys ran downstairs. Their rooftops had been his secret places, and the crows atop the broken tower, his special friends. And then he had fallen. Bran did not remember falling, yet they said he had, so he supposed it must be true. He had almost died. When he saw the weather-worn gargoyles atop the first keep where it had happened, he got a queer tight feeling in his belly. And now he could not climb, nor walk, nor run, nor sword fight. And here's the key part. And the dreams he dreamed of knighthood had soured in his head. It's like, <laughs> mwah, perfect. That's exactly what's going on in Bran's head. Is this fight and how it relates to his fall and the loss of his childhood. Bran becoming a warg is wrapped up in the death of his childhood dreams and his desire to leave home. And the wolves are reflecting that. And still the <laughs> dire wolves howled. The guards on the walls muttered curses. Hounds in the kennels barked furiously. Horses kicked at their stalls. The walders shivered by their fire. And even Maester Lewin complained of sleepless nights. Only Bran did not mind. And it's because everyone else is involved in the kind of the more political day-to-day -day world of Winterfell and Bran is queuing into the magic. The direwolves, it's interesting, are kind of like the comet in that way. Like, he, Bran goes around in this chapter getting everyone's opinion of them. Everyone has a different interpretation, just like everyone has a different interpretation of the comet. And everyone comes with their biases, just like with the comet, but they all get at different angles on the truth. And the truth is, is that the wolves are unhappy and want freedom because Bran and Rickon are unhappy and want freedom. And Bran especially feels that being a prince is holding him back. There's the telling line from the Kettlemaster, it's freedom they're calling for. They don't like being walled up, and who's to blame them? Wild things belong in the wild, not in the castle. And Bran thinks to himself, well, maybe I'm a wild thing. 
Maybe I don't belong in a castle. And that's that's why George Fraser's old man is not telling him about the wolf blood, but warning him about the wolf blood, that there's a price he has to pay it. And old Nan is, as you say, old Nan is very specifically the one who refuses to call him a prince. Why? Because she embodies the warg side. So in every little conversation, every little detail, George is like imprinting this conflict inside Bran, the prince or the warg. And I just, I, I love that as, as, the, as the foundation of this storyline. It's a great motivating impulse for Bran. It's a great that George sets that conflict in place. I think George has talked about in the past about how Bran is the most difficult point of view to write, in part because he's young, but also in part because of his disability. He can't be Rob Stark leading men into battle. He can't be Catelyn Stark watching men in, in battle. Bran will witness some action later in A Clash of Kings when Theon arrives with the Ironborn, and he will witness the destruction of Winterfell in his final chapter in the book. But I think it's really important that as much as George has talked about this being a difficult character to write, he does have a good grasp on what Bran's inner conflicts are, and that's really the heart of his chapters in A Clash of Kings. When we're talking about Bran 1, we have this kind of call, whether he's supposed to be the Stark in Winterfell, he's supposed to, whether he's supposed to be a wolf, whether he's supposed to be some sort of, not magician, but a person who was able to wield magic. And I think it's really interesting, right? Because he, later in A Clash of Kings, he's going to be wrestling with all of these issues throughout his arc. And I do think, like, when we get to A Dance with Dragons and Bran is there in Bloodraven's cave, the call from Bloodraven is to be like, well, not necessarily forget your Stark identity, but kind of put it aside right now and just become like the last green seer, right? But I think it's really, really important that Bran is still ultimately a Stark at heart. And yes, he is. And I, and I love old Bran, old Nan talk, warning him about being about the, the way of wolves and having the wolf blood in him. Because, you know, we, we look at Stark history. We do have some Starks who are more gentle than other Starks, some gentle wolves, so to speak, like Ned, for instance, a little more gentle. But Brandon Stark, not necessarily the most gentle of the wolves having the wolf blood. I think he's referred to specifically having the wolf blood in him. And other Starks in history, too, being more violent, ferocious characters. And I think it's really, really good. So it's, it's interesting to me that we have these inner, interior conflicts for Bran in place now because it's going to help us kind of anchor Bran's arc going forward because it's so important that Bran is, that Bran, that, that George is writing Bran to be a very realistic uh, disabled person because he's not going to be walking around. He's not going to be engaging in sword fighting and becoming a knight as he talks about. Maester Loon will call him to be, you know, some call my order, the Knights of the Mind. And Bran's like, okay, sure, sure, old man. But at the same time, though, George, I think uh, that disability forces George to kind of think of some creative ways of animating some of the action Bran's chapters, namely in giving Bran the ability to be a warg, right? Namely having him have some action, some mobility in his dire wolves. But more than that, though, not just being a wolf, though, Bran is also the prince. He is Rob's heir at this point in the story. And ultimately, he will be the king of Westeros, we talked about at the beginning of this episode. For sure. And like you were saying, it's difficult to say whether Bran's connection to his wolf embodies his connection to the Starks or embodies his distance from his connection to the Starks. Like, is, <laughs> is this him embracing the Stark blood more than ever, as Old Nan is kind of telling him. But on the other hand, it's making him want to leave Winterfell, the cradle of Stark identity, and it's distracting him from his his duties as a prince. So so which is it? And I think part of how George writes Bran, I think, well, or at least relatively well as a, as a disabled POV character, 
is that you get the sense that a lot of people with who suffered disabilities go through, which is that I have to find a new definition of my life, not just what I'm doing today, but what my whole life is about because there are options that are closed off to me. I need a new self-definition. And brand is being given choices between two, that, two identities that have some things in common, but at this moment in the storyline feel very different. The warg versus the prince, and they both cost things of him, and they both offer ways to rise above his disability, but also not transcend it completely. And it's it's a very difficult choice. And yeah, you have to add to all of that Bran's age, which is what makes him so hard for him to express what's happening to him. Like, Hmm. you imagine if this was happening to someone who was Tyrion's age, or even John's, like, they might have the wherewithal to go to a trusted adult and say... So, hey, every night when I fall asleep, it feels like my brain is melting and reforming into that of a wolf. I think we should do something about this. Like, I can see John trying to convey that to Maester Aemon. I can see Tyrion looking up a bunch of books and, like, finding a librarian he can disavow or have murdered if he has if he talks about it. You know, I can see them having strategies, but Bran is eight. So all he can think to do is howl like a wolf as hard as he can directly in Lewin's face. It's the only way he can communicate it. This is not just a childish fancy. I feel like something's happening inside of me and Lewin Lewin can't really deal with it because as we've said Lewin is the rationalist he's the other side of the spectrum in terms of Bran's mentors he's the anti-Jojen the anti-Blood Raven Osha old Nan and he's the one who's trying to get Bran to give up his dreams of both knighthood and magic I think it's important emotionally though that he's not cruel like hmm. Lewin loves Bran very clearly like probably yeah. seemingly more than the rest of the kids even and it hurts him to see this like there's that really sad part when Bran is just howling and refusing to be a prince the maester surrendered, as you will, child, with a look that was part grief and part disgust. He left the bedchamber, and I think that really captures the complex emotions going on in Lewin right now, that Bran is, is really making this more difficult in a very difficult situation, but he also understands that, of course, this kid has lost everything. It's We're, we're asking too much of him. And Lewin is, is constantly being pushed up against Bran's magical side, and he's the one who has to grapple with it and, you know, take part in this dialectic. Like, Lewin, later on in Clash of Things, he will have choice things to say about hedge wizards when they, like, give bad advice to, I think it's the Glovers, about how much harvest they're supposed to keep away. And Lewin's like, yeah, I can't listen to them. you got to be rational and think <laughs> practically. And then, of course, even more so, he has to contend with the idea of Jojen's green dreams. Like, Bran goes to him and says, Jojen Reed says he can see the future. What do you think about that, El Doctor? And Maester Lewin has to, to try to deal with it. And... You know, then you get to that great scene at the end with his his merciful death in the God's Wood, in front of the Heart Tree. You know, the emblem of Stark magic, and uh, I think that goes a long way towards towards reconciling uh, these these two halves. That you have this the political mentor who who dies like in in in, in the God's Wood in the heart of magic, seeing Bran one last time. Do you, do you think that works as like a as a resolution to this conflict? I think it works as both resolution to the conflict as well as an excellent exploration of the trope of the mentor figure dying, right? Mm-hmm. We talked about that, I think, in one of our Q&A episodes about whether Blood Raven is going to die. And we're both like, yeah, that's the entire point of the mentor figure to die to allow the youngling to then rise and and as a fantasy trope. I think it's really good that Lewin, though, is serving as a counterbalance. And the thing is, like, Lewin is, is wrong a lot. But he's not wrong all the time. I think it's important that George is like we, we talked about in Brand's final chapter in the Game of Thrones. One of the things about Lewin is just like how wrong he is and being this rational skeptic and that George is being like, well, this guy's just like wrong about everything. But he's not like he's not stupid. He's not an idiot. He's not also like you said, he's also not cruel too to Bran. Like he he has a genuine feeling for these kids and, and Bran, Bran specifically being our point of view, of course. And I think like, you know, it's it's really it's kind of sad for for Lewin that he, he he has this 
he's never quite able to grasp like the extent of what Bran is going through. Like he can, his mind, as educated as he is, he, his mind cannot grasp like what what Borging is, what Bran is actually experiencing in having these wolf dreams, what he's experiencing in having these dreams of the three-eyed crow either. But it's important though too that Lewin also works as kind of a way for for Bran to balance both the magical side and the and the rational, realistic, skeptical side. I think like when we're talking about like Bran as, as the ultimate, the king of the six kingdoms or king of Westeros, whatever it's going to be, that Bran is united and joining these two sides together as into one. And I think it's interesting too in that you know we talk about Danny and John as being characters who have ex- who experienced significant conflict over their their different sides. Danny is the mother of dragons versus Danny as the kind of peacemaker Mysa figure. John as a member of the Night's Watch versus John playing politics. And these these conflicts are brought into specific focus in a dance with dragons. What Bran is doing here in a Clash of Kings is already demonstrating that you don't have to just be one or the other. You could be both together. And that's really important for Bran's arc that he has that united sense of purpose. And I think that's really, really important that Bran is both a smart political minds we're going to find out in clash of kings brand too as well as being one very much in touch with his magical side i think it's an important idea in a lot of storytelling and, and myths and philosophical concepts that you you shouldn't try to defeat and destroy the shadow side of your heart or the dark side of your heart but integrate it and understand it and own it because if you try to destroy it that's impossible so what you'll actually end up doing is driving it to the corners of your mind where it can just fester and grow worse and worse and you lose the ability to control it i think you'd see maybe the ultimate example of that in the series way down the line with euron Greyjoy, <laughs> who is in a lot of ways just an evil version of bran and i think with, with bran the goal is yeah as you say to, to reach that harmony and the, yeah the key to that is that lewin is not being presented as unreasonable like lewin didn't see the prologue to a game of thrones lewin didn't watch the white walkers come back lewin doesn't know that dragons are back it's not unreasonable that he's reaching the conclusion that this is just a way for bran to act out some genuine traumas that he's going through in childhood and like you know when when bran goes around asking everyone why the direwolves are howling some give answers relevant to the magical side of things old man with you know sniffing up at the comet it be dragons boy <laughs> but but sir roderick's answer is more representative of how things stand at winterfell right now who can know the mind of a wolf sir roderick cassell said when bran asked him why they howled bran's lady mother had named him castellan of winterfell in her absence and his duties left him little time for idle questions like <laughs> you have the magical and political world openly coming together with dragonstone but the former is largely hidden beneath the latter at Winterfell, with only Bran himself at the contact point. That's why I can't exactly blame Sir Roderick and Maester Lewin for not being interested. I still think Lewin should have taken it more seriously when Bran and Rickon's <laughs> shared dream came true. But it's hard to shake a worldview that kind of that strongly inculcated, especially when he's an adult dealing with children. And this 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 just isn't like Danny when she performed a goddamn miracle in public, and you know, like she says, you could see it in everyone's eyes; they were now hers as they'd never been Drogo's because of what she did in front of them. It's not even like Melisandre, who definitely employs more fakery than Danny does, but she still comes to Dragonstone openly. Big narrative, big ambitions. I'm integrating this trippy religious stuff into this environment. I'm doing it. But in this storyline, all the trippy religious stuff, at least at first is happening in Bran's head. It's his thoughts, his feelings, his dreams, and no one else really has reason to take it seriously. Even when Jojen shows up to directly inject prophecy into this storyline, the images themselves are positively mundane next to like the, the freak outs of the House of the Undying or the Forsaken. Like Jojen's like, there's going to be a piece of meat and you won't like it. Like it's, <laughs> it's very grounded and that's in part because this storyline always has that foot in the political world and George doesn't want to let go of it. 
always has to be a little bit grounded. Like, yeah, the wolves are emissaries of magic because they came south of the wall when they weren't supposed to, and maybe Blood Raven sent them, and there was one for each Stark, but they're also just big, mean dogs, and that's the level at which most of the residents of Winterfell are engaging them, not only because they're skeptical, but because they're busy. Like, Bran's <laughs> early chapters in The Clash of Kings are in large part about, about the work, the hard work, of making Rob's kingdom a reality on the ground. And Maester Lewin and Sir Roderick don't exactly need Bran's help for this, because he's eight. But as Rob's heir and the Stark in Winterfell, they need him to get more engaged for the future. He needs to be a true prince, as Lewin says, so he can be potentially a true king later on down the line. So you get this... This great sense, I think, in these early brand chapters of this this orderly, bustling world. Revan are running around doing their job, and Rickon is having a childhood again with the phrase, and like everyone's everyone's everything is in its right place. And only the center of gravity is askew. Only Bran himself feels off. But by the end of the book, the entire world apart around him will have fallen apart. Winterfell will be sacked and burned, Sir Roderick and Maester Lewin are dead, the whole northern political community is, is in uproar. And only Bran remains. At that point, only Bran is stable and knows who he is and knows who he wants and where to go. So while Bran doesn't like do much direct political training in this chapter, I think you can sense him like becoming the future king at just like a level deeper than his secular mentors can sense. Like that's where you get the the emphasis of him watching the cycles of life at Winterfell as if from above. He kind of he he he, he feels like the king, even if he's not quite there yet. Do you know what I mean? I, I do. I, I, that's a really good point. I think, you, you know, Bran spends the entirety in the present portion of the chapter sitting on the ledge of the window before he's, he's brought to bed and then has the wolf dreams. And he's observing how people are actually working and, and engaging with the world around them, watching the waters, as we're going to talk about here, momentarily engaging in their game, watching all the residents of Winterfell going about their, their different jobs and their practices there. Uh, but I also think it's kind of interesting, too. I think it's cool you brought up the line from Roger Gassell about, you know, everyone is, is so busy like and, and this duty's left him little time for idle questions it's it kind of feels like a almost like a meta like a meta commentary on what real life is actually like like who has time given how busy everyone is to, to think about like the metaphysical questions of like who am i as an actual person is there a god up there watching everything you know the, these are things that we're as human beings in the real world we we struggle with because we we just don't have time no none of us have time we've got jobs we've got families we've got work we've got friends we've got everything going on so it's hard for us to like kind of like grapple with the kind of greater questions about life the, you know the questions that philosophers and religious leaders and just you know people that have seemingly have time i don't know how the fuck <laughs> they have time are, are able to like kind of grapple with and i think it's it, it's really good but it's it's good that we have brand there who's observing this and observing the busyness of life but also has the time too to grapple with the metaphysical side of the world, namely in seeing the wolf dreams and also seeing the thread crow later on and seeing all sorts of different prophecies and different things happening in the world around him. It's a luxury, right, to consider the, the great questions of life when you're not too busy just living life. But on the other hand, I think everyone who gets to a certain age realizes that if you don't address those big philosophical questions at some point, you're going to start to feel kind of empty inside and yeah. start to feel like, well, what is it all for? And even if you've been leading a good productive life, if you've never had the big thoughts, you might feel yourself like, oh, I went off the path some time ago and I don't know when that happened and I don't know how to get back. And that's what those questions are there to help you do, not just to sit around lazily pontificating while other people <laughs> do the hard work, although that's also fun. I went to Oberlin. I have no problem with that <laughs> as a concept. But uh, yeah, that, that connection, again, it's that harmony that Bran is going for. How do you find a world in which what does it mean to be a god and also we need this many, you know, swords and spears by Friday? You need a person who can handle both those things. And I think that's, that's what Bran is going for is trying to, to integrate those worlds. 
But, you know, later on in the book, as Bran's chapters expand outward to include the northern political community at large, his new lord's face, or prince's face, as it were, will come into play regarding many characters, from Lord Manderley to Lady Hornwood to, of course, Ramsay Snow, as he is named now, and we will have plenty to say about them. But in this chapter, it is all about his new playmates, big and little Walder Frey. And I, I <laughs> love how George introduces these two. Like, Catelyn agreed, just like in passing, to have them fostered back in book one. You can go back and see it. George was setting that up. And then he peppers references to them throughout Bran 1 before devoting this huge chunk of dialogue and exposition around their game. We learn that they're afraid of the wolves, that they're the reason the wolves are locked up, and that Bran really, really doesn't like them <laughs> all before we meet them. And all of that establishes the Walders not as the allies that they ostensibly are, but as enemies, as interlopers, as agents of corruption in the garden of Bran's growth as a character. And they are contributing to his alienation and frustration, even though they were sent to, like, be friends and forge bonds and, like, you know, make the, this this new realm work easier. But it's becoming actually more difficult. Like, it's... Think about it emotionally from Bran's perspective. Like, these two came up the King's Road. Not Dad, nor Mom, nor Big Brother back from the wars. Just these two strangers, these two brats who by their very presence embody the politics the Starks are embroiled in down south. I mean, they're Riverlanders who worship different gods, come from a different part of the Seven Kingdoms, never been, presumably never been north of the Neck before in their lives, but they're here because this is part of Rob's kingdom now, and Bran has to deal with them as the Stark in Winterfell. So you understand his frustration, even beyond just him being a kid. It's as if he's traded his family and his dreams of knighthood for the Game of Thrones and his place in it as a prince. And... Do you think it's fair to say he's kind of looking at the wolves and the magic as like an out? Like, you know, like uh, a way I can get away from these people I hate and find some connection to the people I love. Does that does that sound fair? It does. And, you know, the the wolves offer an opportunity for Bran to walk, of course, as we're going to talk about at the end of the chapter. But they also do offer him an out, too. They offer him a vantage point to the wider world, the freedom that they offer, so to speak, too. You know, the, the waters are great because, you know... I think it's it's what it's Catelyn nine when they're when she goes to the twins and she comes back to Rob and she's like, well, here are the following terms. Walter Frey has to cross this bridge. And Rob's like, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. The wolves foster two kids. That's fine. No, no worries. But it's, you know, it's, it's Bran who has to actually deal with that. Right. And and I think this is like part of like George's gardening here where he has this small little setup that he embodies into that that he integrates into a Game of Thrones that then we have to have Bran have to deal with these kids, these brats i mean they're terrible terrible kids and you know it's so it's it's very fair that bran is looking at them and being like god i wish they would just fucking go away and he wants to like send them away like immediately and lewin's like where are they supposed to go he's like anywhere just send them anywhere go back send, send them back to the twins but it's it, you know bran's also not quite understanding the wider calculus there that there is a sense that if he's fostering these kids that maybe rob has some leverage over the over, over the water phrase uh, which is going to be very significant come a storm of swords and Rob comes back to the twins and you know the, the Starks no longer have the Walter phrase in hand so that's going to be very very um, pivotal for events that are going to come for the Red Wedding now I, I think like you you talked about how this how the wolves offer him a sense of freedom and, a sense, and an out from the, the kind of shitty circumstances that Bran is in in Winterfell I think it's absolutely true but in also offering them, them Brandon out it also offers him some some danger too like when we're talking when when Summer and Shaggy Dog are introduced at the end of the chapter and Brandon is working is, is working Summer like there is a real sense of danger in what they represent not just the magical side but also the violence the kind of the stark blood that they also represent too so these are all things that are going on all of it being contrasted against these Walters Frey of course 
it's that great duality. Like the direwolves are in part super sympathetic and, you know, again, Bran's connection to mobility and independence, but they're also being caged up just like the dragons are in a dance with dragons after they go after a kid. It's a clear <laughs> parallel, I think, on George's part. And yeah, you do get that sense even when you're in the wolf that, oh, Bran, I'm so glad you're enjoying this, but maybe you're not paying attention to like the slaver running from Shaggy Dog's jaws and how much you want to like run and hunt and like, you know, maybe think about where those emotions lead you down the line. And as, as much as he wants to be with his wolves, like Lewin is making the fair point. Hey, remember when Summer bit someone's throat out? Sure, it was to protect you, but right. they're violent creatures. And Lewin, of course, is the political mentor, so he tells Bran he has to welcome the phrase, even though <laughs> Lewin also knows that they're the worst. Like in Bran 2, he confronts them, and one of the great Lewin moments tells them off for making fun of Hodor. Like he doesn't like the phrase, but he knows they have to accept them, and that's the kind of compromise that a prince has to make. Like that's what he's trying to tell Bran. Hey, this is not the only time you're going to have to do this. You're going to have to, as, as Danny says, sit and smile with people you'd rather flay. This is part <laughs> of the job. But on the other hand, as with Grey Winds, when he gets skeptical of both the Freys and the Westerlings, uh, the new powers really should be heeding the old powers, at least somewhat. Again, try for that balance. Because long before the Red Wedding and Grey Wind's last futile attempt to warn Rob, these little pricks, Big Walter and Little Walter, they're <laughs> the flies in the ointment. They're the Freys in the ointment, so to speak. They're the warning Ew. sign that this is all going to go wrong because they're kids so they don't have they don't keep up pretenses the way the adults do they're not trying to be friendly so when they talk it's like okay so here's who you guys really are <laughs> like little walder of course is just a pure like schoolyard bully he just uses force to win the game over and over again as osha argues he's he's well named he's big on the outside but he's a little on the inside so he embodies like the blank simplistic cruelty of some of the older phrase, like Hostine or uh, Sir Ryman, who we see just being in, just complete doofus at the at the camp in River Run at a Feast for Crows. Like the ones who are just like, oh, here's my fist slash penis. I'm going to go find something to punch slash fuck. Like that's that's <laughs> the only mental process that's going on. And when Little Walter runs into Ramsey, he finds him just a perfect mentor. Big Walter, on the other hand, wow, this kid, this, this beautiful, <laughs> horrible child. I, I love him. Like, you know, we talked about great main characters like Bran or great secondary characters like Stannis but as far as like background characters like pop in for a couple sentence once or twice a book kind of characters Big Walder is my favorite just because of how well he's defined like he's the inverse he's little on the outside but he's big on the inside he's this this pint-sized supervillain who is made truly terrifying by how much better he is at it than most adults in Westeros like his his game can can compete with Tywin's and he's he's a tiny child like as soon as we meet him He's like rattling off the fray line of succession to Bran. And he's reducing his entire family to like cogs in a machine whose blueprints he's memorized. <laughs> and it's such a contrast when you realize, wow, there's just no affection there at all. Like there is no love yeah. in the twins. Like when they get the news later that Stevron Frey died, they're like, oh, oh, well, who's who's next? Check off the list. Let's go down the line. It's like, what a contrast with the Starks, right? Like the grieving star-crossed Starks who miss each other and feel this great pain and long like none of that with the phrase it's no sentimentality and so you, you get little walder is like the public face of fray power and big walder is the private face little walder is the boot on your neck and big walder is the eye on the prize you put the two of them together and you can understand house fray perfectly without even factoring in the adults like as they say they're, they're not brothers they're cousins but they are wait for it the twins oh thank that's you good thank you very good clap 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 no, I, th I think you're, you're, you're absolutely right. I think like um, 
you know, it's so interesting, right? You were talking about how how big a little water represents like the kind of the more brutal phrase, right? And the more stupid ones. And then, you know, Stannis eventually in the Theon sample chapter from The Winds of Winter calls Hostine, you know, Sir Stupid. You know, like, let him come. Like, I'm happy to face this guy. It's just not Aenys, right? Right. Who is more of like the, the big Walter character is much more. The clever smart, one. Intelligent. Yep. The clever one. Right. Exactly. So it's it's very interesting that George is introducing us to House Frey yet again, right? We're not really going to be interacting with the phrase outside of these two Walters for or really, until a storm of swords, and, and when uh, when Lothar Frey and the other Frey, I can't remember his name. Was it, was it Ryman Frey who shows up at uh, uh, Walder River? Is a bastard comes Walder with him, and again you get that duality. Lothar is all smiles, but Walder Rivers is described as having Lord Walder's face and being sour and grumpy because that's the it's the two masks, the two Janus faces of House Frey. It's it's so good, like it's so good that we have this this smaller phrase here, the child phrase here, who are very much representative of the greater whole, and we will have so much more to say about Big Walter Frey towards the end of this episode itself. But I, I think, like you know, it's interesting too that the phrase are introduced not just a, they are introduced first as being the ones who have are forcing Bran to be away from his wolf. But they're introduced in the form of a game of a of a child's game in quotation marks, right? The Lord of the Crossing, which is such an interesting game when you, especially considering the whole canon of A Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah, I love how George does this. That it, yeah, the the phrase are not just a heel house, although they are an exquisite heel house. <laughs> but they're they're a huge part of how George explores what power means and where power comes from. All the questions we've been saying that animate a Clash of Kings. And what, what they have in common, despite being different in a lot of ways, Little Walter and Big Walter, is how George uses them to emphasize just the base cruelty and meaninglessness of devoting yourself to climbing the ladder of power. Like, again, they're kids, so their Game of Thrones, the Lord of the Crossing game, just exposes the levers of control more nakedly than the scheming, pretentious adults would ever do. Like, they're, what they're playing, the game they're playing is just King of the Mountain, if you've ever played that <laughs> real-world child's game, where you just pick, mm-hmm. a, like, a little, you know, pile of dirt or whatever and just shove everyone off the top and see who wins. That's the game they're playing. It's, it's got nothing to do with, like, learning heraldry or diplomacy or any of the other, like, socializing education games we see uh, kids in this class play. But by calling it Lord of the Crossing and staging <laughs> it on a plank over water, what the young Freys are doing is recreating the origins of their bridge and castles on the Green Fork. It's like they're putting on a play about the first phrase. This is how the first phrase did it. And by restaging with children, I think what George is hinting at is that the first phrase weren't like enterprising, you know, entrepreneurs making the land work for them. They were overgrown kids. They were bullies standing on a plank going, you can't cross unless I say you can or I'll hit you <laughs> off into the water. That's who they are. And you have this great combination of brute force, like just whacking people off and petty rule mongering. Like you didn't say mayhaps or I did or I didn't hear you say it. <laughs> and it's that combo that's so insidious. Like you have Bran named the referee, so they feel the need to have someone on hand, but he's immediately ignored. And that's just a perfect setup. Like that's the slippery slope of power. Like are all these power structures just elaborate justifications for the use of force? Are people taking their oaths seriously to form these this overlapping series of feudal protections that Catalan talks about? Or do people just leverage them in the moment and then abandon them if it means they can get what they want? And I love that, yeah, it's, it's, it's a children's game. It's the smallest possible power structure imaginable, but it's still not immune from this process. The, the, this, all this stuff has trickled down to Big and Little Walter, like all of it has trickled down to Bran. And even at this level, George is embedding these political questions and political themes into A Clash of Kings. So, of course, 
the fray knocks the Stark down at the climax of the game. And of course, mm. the wolf lunges in. And of course, yeah, the Walders shriek that Shaggy Dog didn't even say mayhaps. <laughs> He's breaking the rules because they only obey the rules when it suits them. That's the point of the mm-hmm. phrase. They will follow their oaths if it suits them, and then they will shatter them while complaining about how you broke yours if it suits them. And you get this kind of critique where like dutiful types like Lewin are kind of always going to be at a disadvantage to them. Like, when he locks up the direwolves in the godswood, he's operating in good faith, right? And the problem is the phrase don't. So right. does that leave a Maester Lewin or a Rob Stark vulnerable to them? But does that mean you should be as bad as them? But again, Lewin's not wrong that the direwolves are dangerous. These are, these, this, these are not simple issues, even though they're being delivered to us through a child's perspective dealing with childish issues. issues. There's no easy way to square these circles, but... King Bran will have to try, and as I think we've both been trying to get across in this episode, what, what what seems like just childhood antics to him, I think, feel more now like training. Like George is, is setting up these themes and these questions so Bran can be his answer. That's a, that's a really fa- fascinating and fantastic point. I think, too, like when you think about it, like Bran's entire story all the way through the end of A Dance of Dragons, while it does have certain action moments in it, it is a very long training arc for Bran, right? When you look at it, with Bran as the with King Bran as the end state, you look at all of what's going on in game clash storm, not feast because he's not in feast, but in, in dance and then of course in the Winds Winter and a Dream of Spring, it's all leading to him being the king, and it can be seen as an extended training montage of what he's supposed to do as the king. Does he is he going to be working with? Houses that he might not want to work with. I mean, at some level, is there going to be some survivors who may have participated in the Red Wedding? People who have participated in the War of the Five Kings against the Starks will be alive at the end of the series. I, I think probably right. I mean, just by by the law of of of, of numerical. I mean, there's thousands of people that are involved in the Red Wedding up up at the Twins. Some of them might still be alive at the end of a dan- of, a, of a Dream of Spring. I'm sure that there will be at least a few that will they'll still be alive. What does Bran do with them? Does Bran have to work with? And you know, we're gonna. And, you know, we're also going to find out in Bran's second chapter, too, where Bran has to deal with characters who are a little bit unsavory. As much as we love Wyman Manderley and we love Hoth- Hother and Moore's Umber, these guys don't, I mean, they're they're pretty serious political players in the North when we come to encounter them in Clash. And, yes, we love them in A Dance with Dragons and they're making their grand speeches and betraying the, the, the Boltons and the Freys from inside the walls of Winterfell. But these guys are, are, are a little unruly. They're a little, they're, they're a little trying to press their issues a little too hard on Bran. And Bran has to recognize and deal with the fact that everyone who's going, that not everyone who's coming to him is going to be as amazing and awesome as his siblings, his mother and his father were. And that's really, really good. And that's really good training for Bran that he's getting this here as an eight-year-old kid. Again, it has to be emphasized how young Bran is. He is eight years old and he's already getting a real training. And that's brilliant work on George's part to kind of set that foundation for events at the very end of the series. You're totally right about, you know, Wyman Manderley and the Umbers. I, I love them, but they're not altruists. You know, they're not right. in this just to be good and noble. They, I think they're definitely more decent-hearted people than Roose Bolton, but right. Wyman Manderley never does anything without his eye on the bottom line for White Harbor and the advancements of House Manderley's interests. He wants to build a war fleet for Rob because he's genuinely patriotic, but also because he's going to appoint all those ship's captains <laughs> and everyone who builds one of those ships, a lot of tax money's coming up to the Newcastle mm-hmm. for Wyman Manderley. He's going to see to it that happens. And A Dance with Dragons, same way. He's throwing it all on the line to bring House Stark back, but you know he wants to you know, betroth the Rickon to Wyla and have it be regent or have one of his people be regent for Rickon and have, have House Manderley supplant House Bolton as the second most powerful house in the north. And Bran has to 
again, be able to integrate that with the fact that he knows on a gut level that the phrase are wrong and he can't explain it in this rational political interest within a coalition way. Mm-hmm. So it's not that Bran has to pick a side, it's that Bran has to find a way to make these sides whole. And that, of course, is going to be the foundation for a lot of what we talk about going forward for Bran and the Clash of Kings. But I think that takes us out of the, the bulk of the chapter itself, moving into foreshadowing and groundwork. We have one of those very obvious in retrospect lines referring to the Red Wedding. Who are they mourning now, Bran thinks, regarding the dire wolves howling all night? Had some enemy slain the king in the north who used to be his brother Rob? Which, first of all, what a sad line that is, used to be his brother Rob. Like, again, Bran is becoming a prince and feels like he's giving up his old self and thinks Rob has done the same. But, of course, yeah, in terms of foreshadowing, yeah, not yet, Bran. No one's killed Rob yet. (laughs) Oh, but they will. And one of the more devastating parts of Bran's story is the implication we get in A Storm of Swords that Bran, like dreams about the red wedding maybe as yeah. it happens like maybe through gray, gray mm-hmm. wind's eyes and like again I, I like that george just implies it because that's so much more brutal i think in your imagination than even witnessing it again would be you know what i mean i, I do and and you know i i i love and i i hate mostly i love but mostly it makes me very sad love in a sad way how the red wedding features in so many dreams both brand not only brand dreams but also theon's dream at the end of a clash of kings like these things are, are, and Theon's dream is especially just, just, whoa, we'll get there. There'll be a lot of fun to talk about that for sure. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but yeah, absolutely. I, I think like, I, you're not, I'm not entirely sure whether the direwolves are mourning for the future of the Red Wedding, whether they have some sort of prophetic foresight in mind. I think it's certainly possible, but I do think it serves as excellent foreshadowing foundation for that, that event coming down the road, especially with Brand phrasing it as, has some enemy killed the slain, the king in the north who used to be his brother, Rob. I also think it's interesting, too. We talked about this in pre-production, so for those of you who are high lords and ladies and uh, small customers, you're hearing this again, about how that whole idea of how he used to be his brother, Rob, that, that language speaks to how Daenerys considers Viserys when he's making his grand gesture to claim his crown of gold from Drogo, the man who used to be my brother, Viserys, stood and was saying these things. I think like one of the other things that is interesting too about Bran's like leadership and training arc is like he's realizing and recognizing that the crown almost dehumanizes people. It kind of rips the bonds of familiarity and family and friendship away and forces them to adapt the lords or the king's face at all times. I think it's it's sad, but it's important for Bran to recognize that right now before, you know, years before he actually assumes the throne. It's an important point. We're going to see maybe the ultimate example of that in this book with Stannis versus Renly, where the brotherly bonds are not exactly strong to begin with, but are utterly ripped to shreds by the, the Game of Thrones and the, the pursuit of crowns. And it's a great irony because, you know, the main job of the king is supposed to be to propagate the line, right? At the end of the day, you're not only the leader mm-hmm. of the country, you're supposed to guarantee the next generation through the, right. through the succession. And that's why you see, like, you know, the Tyrells gunning for the throne, it's the Lannisters gunning for the throne. It's not just to have this one monarch, it's to establish a, a legacy. And yet, I think part of what George is saying is that there's a contradiction there where being the king ends up distancing you from your family and distancing you from this from the very bloodline you're supposed to carry on. And yeah, we'll see a bunch of that with, with, with Stannis and with Danny and a bunch of different characters. But that's not the only bit of Red Wedding foreshadowing to be found in Brand 1 in A Clash of Kings. Oh no, there's lots of red wedding foreshadowing, which is interesting because I think it's like our, some of our more direct foreshadowing here. So, speaking of the red wedding, this is not the only time the direwolves are reacting poorly to the phrase. Do you guys remember this from A Storm of Swords, where Grey Wind tries to desperately warn Rob about them and the Westerlings too? Like, he, like Grey Wind's like, hey, Rob, 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 listen to me. Like, these guys are, they're not your friends. Like, and he's going to growl and snarl, but Rob, Seemingly, we don't know this for sure because we don't have Rob's point of view, but he does not have as strong of a connection seemingly to his direwolf as Bran does to Summer. And I think that does lead to some 
pretty poor consequences for Rob down the road. Rip, Rob. Love you, man. There's that great irony, Rob says, where he used to think about the direwolves as mystical protectors, but then Bran and Rickon die, so he doesn't anymore. And you just want to go, no, buddy, they're not dead. Their wolves actually are protecting them more than ever. You're so close to getting it. Mm-hmm. That's part of the great tragedy of Rob Stark as... as, as as, as with Ned Stark, is you see these moments of escape, and then you see them walk right past them, and you just want to grab them by the shoulder and pull them back, and you can't. Mm-hmm. And play, you know, plus two, you know, you have um, you have Summer and Shaggy being kind of locked away from from the phrase in the same way that that uh, that that in the same way that Grey Wind is locked up in a cage with the, at the twins themselves because he's been snapping and growling at the phrase too. So yeah, mm-hmm. listen to your direwolves. If your direwolves are freaking out, and and John, you should listen to this too. When Ghost <laughs> is freaking out in your final chapter, maybe it's not the fact that there is a big giant fucking pig that the wildlings brought south of the wall maybe it's the fact that people mean to murder the fucking shit out of you just 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 a warning for john for somebody down the road absolutely when we can we can only hope that uh, he, he takes ghost a little more seriously after being inside him for a little while absolutely so this is so uh, because this is the red wedding apparently this is the red wedding foreshadowing groundwork for this chapter <clears throat> We did have we did talk a lot about uh, the Lord of the Crossing, the game itself, and this whole idea. If you slip in a quote, mayhaps you get to become Lord of the Crossing and whack people with a stick. Well, wouldn't you know? But Walter Frey will slip in a mayhaps just prior to the Red Wedding. So this comes from Catelyn's penultimate chapter from A Storm of Swords, where Catelyn is asking for guest rights. She says, "My Lord, some food would be most welcome. We have ridden many leagues in the rain." Walter Frey's mouth moved in and out. Food, heh? <laughs> a loaf of bread, a bite of cheese, mayhaps a sausage. Some wine to wash it down, Rob said, and salt. So, of course, Emmett, I think we can both agree that Walter Frey slipping in a mayhaps means that the Red Wedding is completely justified. He said mayhaps, right? So that means he can whack people with a stick and push them into a river. He followed the rules. He read the rules on the inside of the Monopoly box, and he's just going by what the rules say. And yeah, what a a great little moment that is once you make that connection, because... Again, that that makes the point that's just heavily implied in this chapter, which is that Big and Little Walter Frey did not invent this game. Mm-hmm. Someone taught this game to them. Their fathers taught this game to them. And who taught their fathers this game? Why their father? And who was their father? Lord Walter Frey. And I'm sure he didn't invent it either because this is just the phrase teaching each next generation. This is how power works. This is who we are. This is where it comes from. The exact opposite. If I'm ever queen, I'll make them love me, as Santa says. Mm-hmm. The, what the phrase tell their kids is power is a plank over a river and a stick. And you hold the <laughs> stick. And that's how it works. And breaking it down to that childish level just emphasizes how, yeah, really base and brutal and just cheap the phrase conception of power is and how they'll just they'll just take any shortcut. And we'll, we'll talk about this a little more when we get to Clash of Kings and Storm of Swords that part of me thinks like Rob should have been a little looser with his oath breaking once he realized who he was dealing with. And mm-hmm. again, like with Maester Lewin, maybe you need to operate with a little less good faith when you're dealing with such transparently bad faith actors like the phrase. But... That's, again, a very thorny discussion (laughs) as as we go on through the series. One more bit of foreshadowing more specific to Bran we get. When he's talking to Maester Luna about all his dreams, he says, I dream of a tree sometimes, a weirwood, like the one in the godswood. It calls to me. So that might well be foreshadowing of Bran ending up at Blood Raven's tree cave area in in the Dance with Dragons. (laughs) This is one of those situations, and I was talking about this, again, a little bit in pre-production, that... I feel like George hit on his general images and symbols for Bran like right away. Like he got the wolves, he got the trees, he got the birds, and all these are drawn from mythology and stories and they wrap around Bran in these interesting ways. So even if he didn't know at this point Bran is specifically going to a weirwood cave, 
in A Dance with Dragons. I'm sure he knew, like, I'm going to keep on bringing weirwoods back, so I'm going to pepper them in. Even as Bran is doing this, these political things in these early chapters, going to throw in references to the birds and the trees and Old Nan and Osha, and he's... He's got those elements firmly in place, and he—he, I think he senses that he's trusting himself to build as he goes. Yeah, I think yeah, I think you're right about that. I think like George, as we talked about in, in many times before, as a garden will likely will seed stuff in early in the narrative, and then we'll kind of see where the where the where the narrative trees kind of grow and kind of expand out and narrative trees right of course and um you, you know it's interesting right because blood raven's tree is is a very massive weirwood too and something we're going to discover uh, next week in john one and two of course is that john's second chapter in a clash of kings revolves around this massive weirwood tree that he, he sees outside this this little village called um called white tree of course because of course it's white tree as, as a weirwood tree being you know it's a name white tree because it's a weirwood tree town uh which is really interesting too so yeah you know it's interesting right i think like a lot of times you can see like this kind of idea that it's like could be like this physical tree as in blood raven's cave being underneath of a, a grand weirwood tree it could also be more of kind of like ambiguous foreshadowing that brands that the weirwood trees are calling to him and that he will have to embrace his magical identity someday down the road and you know these these are these can both be true at the same time right it could be a more ambiguous line of thought that George is going for that brand needs to become more in tune with the trees the weirwoods and the stories that come from the weirwoods and from the old gods which of course are the spirits of the children of the forest and the old men and it could also be like a specific tree itself namely being blood raven's tree and as many people have pointed out there's the connection to Yggdrasil the world tree and all those kind of old symbols and metaphors that prop up crop up a lot in, in Bran's chapters and I think part of what George does well with with a character like Bran or Daenerys is he's got a firm handling on the general mythological like foundation of the character and like this is these he knows what kinds of stories he's drawing from for each of these characters and he, he sets that up really clearly and then I think he he's, he works out A to B to C a little later on or you know fa- or fails to work out A to B to C in the case of the protracted writing process for the past few books so Moving into our theory slash discussion section for the episode, <laughs> talking a bunch about Big Walter Frey as this kind of like the super villain child who has the whole line of succession memorized, and you know that leads to the question of why is Big Walter like this? <laughs> and I have a theory. It has to do with a Frey we haven't met yet and won't in this book. He doesn't appear until the Storm of Swords. A plump man in his middle thirties, Lothar Frey had close set eyes, a pointed beard, and dark hair that fell to his shoulders in ringlets. A leg twisted at birth had earned him the name Lame Lothar. He had served his father as steward for the past dozen years. At first, when he arrives at Riveron, this is, you know, trying to bridge the gap after Rob broke the, the marriage pact. Lothar seems, as Catelyn describes him, like the model of courtesy. He's one of the good phrase, like Amy or Olivar, reminiscing warmly about Lord Hoster, offering Catelyn gentle <laughs> condolences on the loss of Bran and Rickon, praising Edmure for the victory at Stone Mill, and thanking Rob for the swift, sure justice he had meted out to Rickard Karstark. But of course, what Lothar has actually come to Riveron to do is invite Robin Edmure to the Red Wedding. And in retrospect, some of Lothar's lines stand out not as genuinely warm or even as diplomatic overtures, but as this sort of like double-edged revealing barbs that an older, wiser Big Walder might throw around. Like when they're negotiating and the Blackfish asks, has Lord Walder forgotten that we are fighting a war? And Lothar responds, scarcely. That is why he insists that the marriage take place now, sir. Men die in war, even men who are young and strong. Can you imagine him like turning to Rob as he says that? Yeah, <laughs> young, strong men sometimes die at war. And then later on when they're riding to the twins, he turns to Edmure. You are strangely quiet, Lord Tully. How do you feel, I wonder? 
Much as I did at the stone mill, just before the war horn sounded, Edmure said, only half in jest. Lothar gave a good-natured laugh. Let us pray your marriage ends as happily, my lord. <laughs> going back and rereads, like, oh, God, he's sticking the knife in. He's enjoying this. And as we learn from our one and only Frey POV, Merit, in the epilogue to A Storm of Swords, Lothar's role in the Red Wedding went considerably deeper than delivering the invitations. This, I think, is really the, the key passage in terms of talking about the future of House Frey. When Sir Stevron had been heir, that was one thing. The old man had been grooming Stevron for 60 years and had pounded it into his head that blood was blood. But Stevron had died whilst campaigning with the young wolf in the west. Of waiting, no doubt, Lame Lothar had quipped when the raven brought them the news. And his sons and grandsons were a different sort of fray. Again, the duality. Stevron's son Sir Ryman stood to inherit now, a thick-witted, stubborn, greedy man. And after Ryman came his own sons, another perfect pair, Edwin and Black Walder, who were <laughs> even worse. Fortunately, Lame Lothar once said, they hate each other even more than they hate us. Merritt wasn't certain that was fortunate at all. <laughs> and for that matter, Lothar himself might be more dangerous than either of them. Lord Walder had ordered the slaughter of the Starks at Rosalind's wedding, but it had been Lame Lothar who had plotted it out with Roose Bolton, all the way down to which songs would be played. Lothar was a very amusing fellow to get drunk with, but Merritt would never be so foolish as to turn his back on him. In the twins, you learned early that only full-blood siblings could be trusted and them not very far. So what we learn here is that Lothar, actually, is the true mastermind of House Frey. He's leveraged his position as steward into institutional power that makes him more dangerous than the direct posturing heirs, Edwin and Blackwalder, who seem destined to maybe literally kill each other. <laughs> Tywin and Lord Walder may have given the orders for the Red Wedding, but everything that made it what, what it was came out of Lothar's mind, and Bruce Bolton's, of course. Moreover, his comment about Edwin and Blackwalder turning at each other sounds eh, sounds very chaos as a ladder to me. So is it possible that Lothar intends to take control of the twins in his own right? I think so. But regardless, what does this have to do with Big Walder? Well, perhaps his certainty that he will be Lord of the Twins someday, as he says in this chapter, maybe that springs from something more than egotistical confidence. Maybe he's received some kind of reassurance, some kind of plan. Like, if you take a look at the Frey family tree... As it turns out, Lothar only has daughters. Now, that's not exactly a deal-breaker, but given that Lothar himself doesn't fit the more martial archetype of his cast, again, he's got the twisted leg, he's more intellectual and diplomatic, he, I think he's going to be kind of a tough sell politically as Lord with no son to follow him. He would benefit from a male heir politically. So then, okay, you look at the family tree, you follow along, who's his closest nephew? Well, would you look at that? It's my boy, Big Walder Frey. <laughs> so this is my theory. I think that Lothar has been raising Big Walder as his protege and potential heir, informing him, whether directly or through implication, that he, Lothar, intends to be the next Lord of the Crossing. He intends to win the game, and that if they play their cards right, Big Walder will succeed him in turn, and he will win instead of Little Walder, who always wins the game. And that's why Big Walder has that secret smile. Big Walder memorized the Frey family tree because Lothar sat, it down and sat him down and taught it to him. Big Walder is fanatically committed to his ambitions, even to the extent of kinslaying, as we will see in A Dance with Dragons, because that's the worldview Lothar possesses, and he inculcated it in his chosen heir. The irony is, is that unlike the smooth-talking Lothar who puts on this friendly face, Big Walder isn't even trying to keep their master plan <laughs> under wraps. He just declares at every turn what he's going to do and why he's going to do it. My favorite example personally comes from a dance with dragons after the the three phrase from white harbor disappear and theon's talking to him about it did you find your cousins my lord and big walder just says no i never thought we would they're dead lord wyman had them killed that's what i would have done if i was him 
And he's 100% right. <laughs> and then he uses that information to frame the Manderleys for his murder of little Walder. And he gets away with it. You see why I love this as a horrible, brilliant <laughs> child. But he only gets away with being so blatant about it because he's a kid and a tiny one at that. No one takes him seriously, just like Lewin doesn't take Bran seriously when Bran talks about the wolves. Uh, should Big Walder be lucky enough to grow up? He's a fray in the north, so we'll see. He's got to keep a lid on it if he wants to be like his uncle. But if Big Walder does make it back to the south, Lord Lothar Frey, he might find a knife in his back and become just a rung in his nephew's ladder. I think he, he might have done his job too well, and I think that's the perfect uh, distillation of House Frey. That is such a brilliant theory. And I, and I know like you have the reputation for being more the analysis guy, but you should get into the theory side, man, more. I think it's 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 important for the world to hear more of these theories because that's... Oh, you know, it's a theory. It's a theory, honestly, I had never heard of until you, until you, well, until I was reading it, of course, before the episode itself, but until you, you spoke it here on the episode, too, and I think it's really, really cool. Because, you know, there's there's, a, there's a, another theory that we can talk about here. This is not necessarily my theory, although I've included some parts of here, mostly drawing from your analysis, of course, and theorizing. Because, oh, my sweet Emmett, get ready for a pylon theory that will blow your mind. Are you ready? My body ready? is ready. My mind is uh, never ready, but my body is ready. I love that. Big Walter Frey is the Frey in the Asha fragment sample chapter from The Winds of Winter. Mind okay. blown. Right, exactly. So, in a really great catch by one of our prior guests, Michael, aka Bookshelf Stud, uh, in a post from, I think, 2017, he posits that the guy that Asha Greyjoy is watching from across the ice lakes is none other than Big Walter Frey. Wait, what? Come on. Okay, let's, so let me kind of back up a little bit here, and let's start about what we know about Big Walter. As you put it really well, Big Walter is extremely ambitious, having likely learned the line of succession from his mentor, Lothar, and learning his ways of attaining power, especially how to climb the long line of succession. He wants to be Lord Walter Frey at some point. He makes this point over and over and over again in The Clash of Kings. So him knifing little Walter makes sense to climb the ladder of Frey's succession. So we have a good motivation at work here. Then... In the Theon Winds Winter sample chapter, we find out that Aenys Frey is dead, so another Frey is out of the way. Hastin is still ostensibly alive, or at least he's not reported dead yet, but given the dire circumstances and that Morris Umber and his green boys are out there ambushing and murdering the shit, well, murdering is not murder, it's killing because it's war, killing the shit out of the Freys riding out from Winterfell, it's possible that Hastin might be dead at this point, or will die. I mean, he's definitely going to die if he's not dead right at the Battle of Ice, because Stannis is going to drown that motherfucker in those lakes, it's going to be great. So now let's backtrack. So in Bran's second chapter, the waters it's interesting. The, the waters armor is actually described, and it's described in this way. They brought fine armor up from the twins, shining silver plate with enameled blue chasings. Big Walter's crest was shaped like a castle while little Walter, while little Walter favored streamers of blue and gray silk. So, you know, it's interesting, right? So Big Walter's helmet is crested like the shape of a castle. That's a kind of an interesting detail, right? stands out especially when it gets when you consider how asha describes the leader of the phrase in the winds of winter sample chapter from from her perspective the leader of the enemy wore silver plate and mail inlaid with a detail that we're not sure of the word of of lapis lazuli the crest of his helmet was tall fashioned in the shape of the twin towers of house Frey. Wow. Okay. So again, compare the two pastures there. We have got Big Walter's helmet being described as being shaped like a castle. And then in the Winds of Winter, we have the leader of the Freys being having a helmet fashioned in the shape of the twin towers of House Frey. So is it possible that Big Walter is leading the Frey army or is, or is at least a part of it? You know, I, I kind of like to think so, right? And, and then we have to consider something else too. Something about our boy, 
King Stannis of House Baratheon, the guy who was all about making new lords and all about pardons, kind of reluctant pardons, is about to meet the Freys in battle. You know, is it possible that Big Walter Frey could leverage himself as a potential ally to Stannis, pledging fealty and the twins to Stannis in exchange for pardon? I mean, let's even posit, let's even posit that Big Walter, if it's actually him, and, and again, it's not confirm that it's him, and I, I sure as sin hope it is him, is out there on the ice lakes and he watches his army drown in an icy surprise, Stannis' icy lake surprise, and makes a calculation then and there. Oh, your grace, I'll bend the knee to you, your grace, but if I rise as Lord Frey, why, I could be more than a prisoner to you. And really, that's the big Walter story in A Clash of Kings, loyalty to the strong horse. From the Starks to Theon to Ramsay, Big Walter is constantly switching sides throughout the story to both stay alive and also to gain power. And if there's one thing we learn from Theon's A Dance with Dragons chapters in Winterfell, the Boltons are in dire fucking straits, with most of the North secretly or openly hating them, murders going on all around the castle of Winterfell, and Ramsay positioning himself to murder his father Roose and wife Walda. Big Walder need only put his finger to the wind to realize that Bolton's strength at Winterfell is kind of empty. Sooner or later, they're going to get their asses killed or get their rule toppled, or both. Hopefully both. And if the Frey army is destroyed in battle and in ice, at the ice lakes, they would have lost, the Boltons would have lost 25 to 40% of their combat power in the entire north. Wouldn't it make sense then if Big Walter, taking a page from Lothar Frey and Lord Walter, decides to hitch his ambitious ass to the stronger horse as fortunes shift? <laughs> Can you imagine like that moment in the winds of winter of Big Walter Frey bending the knee to Stannis Baratheon and requesting that he rise as Lord Walter Frey of the Crossing? I, I think it would just be just a masterful moment for this little monstrous fucking child. But, I think, <laughs> you know... But but who knows, right? I mean, ultimately, it all comes down to one word: mayhaps. Exactly. Hell yeah, I love I love that theory. It's just just building on what I was saying. I think that's perfect. I love that that little image captured by by Michael from that Asha chapter. I think that would work great, especially if that part of the chapter is after Hostine has already sunk, and maybe like the rest of the last few phrases are like regrouping, and that's Big Walder coming out to negotiate, or yeah, bend the knee, as you say. And yeah, Stannis could certainly use a loyal, or at least seemingly loyal, Lord of the Twins. <laughs> the other possibility here, I think, is Stannis has a position for squire open, because Stannis mm. came north with two squires, Devon Seaworth, Davos' son, who left back at the wall with Melisandre, who's trying to keep him safe, and Brian Faring, who has died on the march to Winterfell. He starved mm. or got too cold or, or something. He died he died, he died along the way. So Stannis does need a new squire, and Big Walder is a squire, so he could, he, could, he could smoothly be integrated. And yeah, I think that would, as you say, you said really well, it builds on Big Walder always, always hitching his cart to a new horse and seeing who's the strong person in the room. And yeah, the very fact that he framed the Manderleys for little Walder and got everyone's knives at each other in Winterfell suggests he's already moving on from all these factions and is fine with right. So maybe he's already thinking, Stannis is probably going to win this battle. Maybe I can try to ride this storm out. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be surprised at all if, if that's that's his way home. And they, I love that. I love him having the that the, the crest of that shape because again, it captures that duality. Little Walder has the streamers of blue and gray silk. It's the presentation, the pride of House Frey. But Big Walder has the castle. Again, eye on the prize. This mm-hmm. is what it's about. I might not be the fancy one, the big one, the one who wins the children's game, but I'm gonna win the real game, and I know <laughs> how I'm gonna do it. And just like Bran has these these two aspects he's trying to reconcile with. And that's, as I've been saying throughout this episode, what I, I love that the, the duality going on Bran's head is just reflected in the world around him. That's what makes these supporting characters not just incidental, but like important parts of the story and important parts of the main character's arcs. 
Oh my goodness. Yeah, that is so, so good, man. But yeah, so we should, we should just make this the big water podcast going forward. I think going forward, we'll just calculate, we'll just chart his rise to becoming Lord of the Crossing. And, you know, that'd be interesting too. Like we were talking at the very beginning about how Bran might have to make compromises as King of Westeros with people who are, who suck, right? Or people that, you know, he might have to make compromises with as, as part of his real, you know, right. duties. Could Big Walter Frey, Lord Big Walter Frey, be one of those people that he has to make compromises with, spare him, kill him, do something else with him? Again, mayhaps. It's it's entirely possible. I do. There's that very telling moment in Dance, in that same scene where Theon is talking to him about the Fraser disappeared, where Theon notes, oh God, little Walter loves Ramsay and is like becoming more like Ramsay every day. And he says, Big Walter on their hand, he says, is made of different stuff, is the phrase he uses, mm-hmm. which is a very categorical distinction. And Big Walter seems kind of horrified and like disgusted. But I like how Ramsey and Littlewater conduct themselves and you go, oh, okay, so he's definitely dangerous and terrifying, but he's not like a sadist. Like he right. doesn't enjoy hurting people, which is a low bar, but for House Frey, that is a bar. So I do wonder <laughs> if that might be a situation where Bran has to go, hmm, I could revenge myself on this kid, but you know what? He's actually like the, the least of bad options as far as House right. Frey goes. Maybe I'm going to give him a pass. I think it's, it's entirely possible that none of that happens. Big Walter dies or gets swept off stage. Again, he's a very minor character. But the way George is setting him up, I think, is really interesting. And I think if he has the potential to, if, if he wants to keep a few phrase alive, which I feel like perversely he's going to do, I think Big Walter is, is a strong candidate for one of them. Agreed there. So that was a whole lot of fun to talk about him. But I think, sadly, we have to conclude our podcast here. So thank you, everyone, for listening. Really, it's it's a pleasure doing this. I mean, this episode, I think, was a lot of fun to do. I mean, not, not that all, not all of our episodes are, of course, fun, lots of fun to record. But this one, I felt, was especially fun to do for sure. Hell yeah, made me more excited than ever to do the rest of the brand chapters in Clash. Yes. We're going to have a, some, a couple of cool guests later on that we'll uh, reveal when we get closer to those chapters. But as good as this chapter is, it really is it, just the beginning. Like, the chapters from here just expand outward. Lots of new characters, lots of new ideas. There's going to be so much to discuss. Absolutely. So, thank you again for listening. As always, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, anywhere and everywhere you find your podcasts. Check us out at Patreon, guys, at patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, if you haven't already, especially with our Fever Dream episodes coming up. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, at gmail.com. You can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brennan B. Fish on Twitter, Brennan B. Fish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsoficeandfire.wordpress.com. So, thank you as always to our high lords and ladies on Patreon, Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lord Quint, uh, Lord Clint Esquire, the Wolf in the West, Sir Sorsadelica, Lady Veneris of the House Colgarian, the first of her name, the Overworked, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser and the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portraitist of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Creator of Arts and Maker of Drawings. Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Nerrible, the Shoeless Sage, Lady Madeline Rivers, Justiciar of the Trident, and Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood. Thank you, as always, to all our High Lords and Ladies. You're the best. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much. Really appreciate your patience and enjoying having so many great conversations on our Slack with you all. So join us next week as we keep heading north to the Wall and beyond in John 1 and 2, because we're doing another combo episode, which is kind of cool. You'll, you'll find out why next week. And we're very pleased to announce that we'll be joined by a very special, special, special guest. 
Yes, indeed. Our, our buddy and uh, fandom heavyweight Matt, a.k.a. Joe Magician, or Joe the Magician, as we call him around here, <laughs> will be joining us for that episode. And we're so pleased by that. Matt's one of our favorite people in the fandom. And he's just, he's one of those guys with, with a, a thumb in every pie. He does great videos. He's a Reddit mod. He writes great essays. There's, there's nothing cool in the, this community that he, does, that he doesn't try to get involved in in some ways. And he always does a great job. And we have somehow neglected to have him on the podcast before now, so I'm very glad we're going to rectify that. He's a big fan of Jon Snow and a big fan of Maester Aemon, so we thought this would be perfect. And it's going to be a great episode, too, because this is where the where Donald Noy makes, Donald Noy makes his speech about the, the Baratheon brothers being the true, who is the true steel, the iron, and the copper. So uh, it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about that, too, with Matt, as, as we will get to next week. So... Thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys so much for your patrons, those who are patrons, and we will see you guys next week.